Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gronyini A, and this week, what is life like for people staying in Ukraine and for those who have left? There are some unbelievable, heartbreaking stories and images coming from Ukraine in recent days. A child with cancer hugging their parent in a bunker in a Kiev children's hospital. Families carrying packed bags and their pets while being escorted over the border by soldiers. The Ukrainian president giving updates from a bunker flanked by his country's flag while translators tear up at his pledges to fight back against the Russian invasion. It's hard to grasp the tragedy of it all. The latest figures from the UN suggest that around 836,000 people have fled Ukraine across the country's borders. At that current rate of increase, there is likely to be a million Ukrainian refugees before the end of the week. To give us a better sense of what is happening on the ground for people staying in Ukraine and for those fleeing the country, we spoke to independent journalist Olga Tukaryuk, who is based in Western Ukraine, and Gabrielle Leu of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. We first spoke to Olga and began by asking her what the past few days have been like. Well, you know, sometimes I have a feeling that it's just one long nightmare and I want to wake up in the morning and it all went away. But unfortunately, when I wake up in the morning, I immediately remember that it's not over. There is still war. And I just, you know, grab my phone and uh, frantically check whether Kiev is still standing because it's like something crucial. That's my city where I lived for 20 years. I'm not originally from Kiev, but I lived there for, for 20 years and I love it with all my heart and a lot of my friends are still there, you know, staying there with their children in bomb shelters under Russian missiles and under Russian, you know, airstrikes. Um, so, of course, it's 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 very hard uh, because it's it's very personal. You know, it's very personal what is happening. It affects me. It affects my loved ones. It affects my friends. It affects my country that I also love and I'm very attached to. I had the chance, uh, you know, um, to live abroad, to, to live uh, in the European Union. I studied abroad, but I decided it was my conscious decision to go back and to contribute to the development of my country. So what is happening, you know, is, is very painful to watch because it's not just personal on a level of, uh, you know, family and friends, but it's also personal on a level of my attachment to my country, my commitment to make it better. So it's, it's very painful to watch its destruction by Russia. How are people in Ukraine feeling at the moment and what is morale like? Are people frightened? Are they angry? Are they being practical? Well, I think we are feeling a wide range of different emotions and it's a very, you know, it's like an emotional roller coaster. Uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, it's very frightening what is happening, seeing kids like little children killed by Russian missiles. It's one of the most, most heartbreaking things one could watch. So, of course, that's uh, very, very like tragic and painful and horrifying. At the same time, well, there is this very, very strong, you know, feeling of um, determination to resist what is happening, because what is happening, like this Russian invasion, what Russia is doing, targeting civilians, targeting residential buildings, targeting hospitals, uh, you know, a hospital with a maternity ward was hit by a missile in the morning today in Jatoma region. It's not the first case before that happened in Kiev and in other places of Ukraine. So this is a barbarity, you know, there are no other words to describe it. And of course, it causes a lot of anger. 
a lot of hate because how can you react to this like deliberate killings of babies and children and civilians you know so it, it can't cause any other emotions but then we try to transform this anger into practical actions into um, helping to defend ukraine each one in their own ways a lot of people actually volunteered to join the army and territorial defense units both men and women which is remarkable because a lot of women are also participating in an effort to resist with arms in their hands actually the government is saying that volunteers are there are more volunteers that are needed at the moment and many people who are you know coming up to uh, subscribe to join the army they are told well we have enough people for now okay like we we will you know take note we will uh, take your contacts but we will you will be contacted at a later stage because now there is no need there is enough volunteers there is actually the weapons that are missing there are enough people willing to fight but there is not enough ammunition not enough weapons for them to fight this is a problem and also the massive you know civilian effort to resist civilians have been making molotov cocktails throwing them at russian military vehicles civilians are also doing everything they can uh, to provide the army, but also internally displaced people with um, medical aid, you know, with medical supplies, with food. There was a news this morning that really made me smile that in a town, not a very big town, several, okay, maybe 40, 50,000 people live there. They made two and a half tons of dumplings, you know, handmade to send to the hospitals in Kyiv and the region. And this is something that is happening in every Ukrainian region that has not been affected by the fighting. So, of course, India is affected by the fighting. Like There are more immediate concerns and people really suffer there. But in those areas that are still safe, people are really trying to do all they can to help, you know, by making food, sending food, uh, sending medical supplies, um, providing shelter to the internally displaced people fleeing from the areas that are currently under fighting. So a massive, you know, collective effort on all levels of the society to resist this barbaric Russian invasion. You mentioned people making Molotov cocktails there. Do we have any idea of just how many civilians are willing to fight or to take up arms against the Russian invasion? Well, uh, there were polls conducted before the invasion, and these polls indicated that more than half Ukrainian, uh, you know, respondents, people, citizens said that they were ready to participate in resistance with different means. Actually, I think now the number is higher because people are seeing the way Russia conducts this war, committing war crimes, targeting civilian objects. So. Uh, from what I'm seeing around me, you know, everyone in, in their own ways participating in the resistance, either providing assistance to the army or um, trying to help uh, internally displaced people or uh, trying, you know, also wage a war in the information space uh, and uh, um, talk to their uh, relatives and friends or former friends in Russia, telling them what is happening, somehow persuading them that they have to protest about this, that they have to rise up to their dictator Putin and ask him to stop. Also, a lot of people are uh, speaking with uh, um, their friends abroad, you know, raising the awareness about what is happening. So we are conducting like our, our own small or big battles on a daily basis. For the people who are still in Ukraine, particularly in areas where the fighting has already started, what are you hearing about how food and water supplies are doing? Well, the areas that are most affected and that are suffering now are the areas in 
in the eastern Ukraine around Kharkiv. Well, we are currently, um, I'm now based in, in, West, in western Ukraine, we are hosting a lot of uh, internally displaced people from there. So one family from Kharkiv that um, lives with us, they said that um, the, what they hear from their relatives and, you know, friends who stayed behind there in Kharkiv, that there was really shortage of bread, especially. Like the, there is some like other food is still there, but the bread is, you know, there is a shortage of bread and the prices have really skyrocketed. In Kharkiv, what we've seen also in the last days uh, when Russia was, uh, you know, using these uh, missiles to conduct strikes on civilians, that civilians who went out of their houses to buy also like drinking water and food, that they were hit and they were killed by this missile. So it's not only, you know, an issue of uh, accessibility of the supplies, but also of how risky it is to go out and try to get these supplies, especially if people need to stay in lines, you know, they, they are standing in lines and I've seen those lines also in Kyiv. In Kyiv, what I'm hearing from my friends and some journalists who are on the ground, uh, that there is still food in the supermarkets, so the situation is better compared to Kharkiv. There is still um, there is still food, uh, but there are very long queues uh, because um, most of the of the time there is curfew. So only for a few hours uh, a day, people can go out of their houses and buy you know buy food. So that's why like there are these queues, and that's again like a danger if people for several hours stay outside in the queues there is a probability they could be targeted by those missiles flying from the sky by those bombs that russia has been dropping because this is actually the main danger you know and the main like threat now we've seen ukrainian army um fighting pretty successfully on the ground in land combat you know but ukraine doesn't have uh, enough air defense and it doesn't have enough it doesn't have at all missile defense so um, the NATO doesn't want to commit to a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which Ukrainians are asking for to protect our civilians, to protect our children from these bombs dropping on their heads. But so far, there is no willingness to do that, to impose that and to enforce it. And that's why that's currently the, the biggest threat to civilians are these uh, aerial bombardments. For the people who are fleeing Ukraine, there have been videos of long traffic queues and packed trains trying to get out of Kyiv. Is that still the case for people trying to flee the country? Yes, that's still the situation. Actually, some of my friends, they were um, departing yesterday from Kyiv region. They were hoping that, you know, it would be safe. So they didn't uh, leave in the first days after the invasion. But then the situation really deteriorated. And in the area they were staying, there were heavy fights. They also have a small kid. So... They decided to flee and we, you know, exchanged messages yesterday and they said that there were queues and it was not easy to get out of Kyiv region. Um, it's the western western part of, uh, of Kyiv. And also they said that um, they had to use secondary roads, not the, you know, the main roads because it's it's more dangerous. On the, on the main roads there are like fights going on and I, I don't know, like they didn't specify but they said like for, for other reasons, it was safer to use secondary roads. Um, there is also a big problem, you know, a lot of people do not own a car, so they cannot get out um, from the areas affected by the fighting. And um, other like family of our friends whom we are hosting here as well with us, 
Uh, they arrived several days ago on a train from Kyiv. They live in Kyiv suburbs. Like the, the, the most, you know, the hottest areas now are areas around Kyiv. Inside Kyiv, it's relatively safer. But the areas around Kyiv are those where the most heavy fighting is going on since the start of the invasion. So they spent two nights, uh, basically two days in, in a bomb shelter in one of the areas in Kyiv's uh, suburbs most affected by the fighting because there is a military airfield nearby Hostomel. They also have a five-year-old uh, child and they spent two nights in this very cold shelter uh, hearing constantly bombs dropping over their heads and very loud explosions and like other, you know, terrible sounds of war. And, but they were able to um, get to Kyiv and to catch a train to, to the Western Ukraine. On this train, um, it, it was overcrowded. They, it was very difficult to get on because there were so many people attempting to flee and trying, you know, on board, trying to get on board. So the, the journey was 17 hours. And most of that time, majority of the, of the people on the train had to stand on their feet. And this family, they shared the compartment for, which is normally for four people with the eight adults, uh, five children, three cats and a dog. So very, very, you know, crowded situation, but still they were happy that they are fleeing to safety. And now we are, you know, trying to take good care of them here, somehow to, you know, treat them also, because this, that's also a psychological trauma, especially for kids. Children uh, in Ukraine has been affected by the war both children who experienced the, it, who heard all this, you know, explosions and airstrikes and who saw armed people like fights on the streets, but also people in other areas who might not have been yet affected directly, you know, maybe they haven't witnessed that with their own eyes, but they hear the news, they see their parents and adults talking about the war. So they draw, you know, they draw pictures of uh, Russian tanks being destroyed by Ukrainian tanks and uh, Ukrainian flags and things like that. And my kid was doing the same. But also for like, if we are speaking about how the children have been affected, it's heartbreaking, you know, what my friends who are still staying in Kiev with their children, what they say that the kids, uh, they started to have like psychological uh, problems, but also health issues such as like constipations and ticks like nervous ticks and um, they started to wet their beds at night you know like all those kids all those things that happen when there is a danger and when children you know f do not feel safe so it's really terrible what is happening now and and it's really very um, also heartbreaking that there is so little chance for these kids to you know to to get to safety because as I said, it's very difficult to get out of, of those areas affected by the fighting because the trains are not enough, the roads are not safe, people don't, not all people own a car. And because there is no way to stop these Russian bombs from falling, because we do not have, in Ukraine, we do not have missile defense. We cannot, on our own, protect our skies and protect our children from bombs falling on their heads. On that note, just how do Ukrainians view the international support they've received from both people and governments over the past few days? Well, we, we very appreciate the support we are getting from all over the world. You know, it's uh, something massive and we are seeing the willingness of millions of people all over the globe to help. I'm receiving messages from different countries. I, I 
I apologize that I'm not able to read all of them because there are so many. I just can't, you know, I just don't cannot find time to read all of them. But I'm really, really grateful for all the support that, you know, you people of the world are showing to Ukraine. And of course, like the measures that have been taken are unprecedented by the West, um, the European Union countries, individual countries to provide more weapons to Ukraine to help us defend ourselves. It's great that we are receiving so much uh, also support in terms of humanitarian assistance. It's difficult to get it to Ukraine, it's true, because there are only land routes through the Western border and there are like huge also like the roads are clogged and it's difficult to to access Ukraine but um, hopefully like this uh, supplies will start arriving soon we'll be able to also bring them to people most affected in the eastern parts of the country because it's there that the situation is the worst but this is not enough you know and, well sanctions in Russia again unprecedented great but more should be done more should be done first of all this is, of course, like as I said, the biggest uh, threat for, for Ukraine now and something we cannot do on our own is to protect our sky. I know this is not very popular because many in the West fear it would lead to a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO and potentially to the World War III. But for us in Ukraine, the World War III has already begun. You know, our children are already dying under Russian missiles. It's very painful to hear the words that we are not going to help you with that, that we are hearing in the recent days. You know, it's very frustrating because our people are sacrificing their lives, are sacrificing everything they have. And it's painful to hear that we will not get support from what we are obviously unable to do on our own, also because we've been denied. Ukrainian government made several requests in the past uh, to provide us with the missile defense systems, but these requests were rejected by uh, the United States and by Israel, by other countries who were able, you know, to provide this kind of systems. So, yeah, we were we were denied that earlier, and now we are facing the consequences of that. Has anything about your country's response surprised you? It was not surprising for me, you know, I wrote about uh, about the fact that Ukraine will fight back in November. It's the, uh, there is my opinion piece on the website of SIPA, Center for European Policy Analysis. I call, I'm their non-resident fellow in Ukraine. Uh, the piece is called Ukraine will fight and Ukraine will be right. And that's what I what I wrote there, you know, that there is no way Russia can like occupy Ukraine or can like break the spirit of Ukrainians. Ukrainians will fight, will defend themselves because we have a lot to lose. You know, uh, we've been independent for 30 years. This was a dream of Ukrainian people for centuries. Ukrainian nation has existed for centuries. Kyiv was uh, founded um, several centuries before Moscow. Um, it was a cradle of civilization in this part of the world, actually, and, you know, the um, laws and culture and uh, Christianity was brought to Russia from Kyiv, not uh, vice versa. And Ukrainian people were for centuries denied their own state by different uh, big powers. Uh, in Russian Empire, uh, Ukrainian language was banned, Ukrainian culture was banned. In the Soviet Union, um, millions of Ukrainians were killed in an artificial famine, uh, Holodomor, 
organized by Stalin in the 1930s. Uh, huge repressions of Ukrainian peasants, Ukrainian intelligentsia were continuing through 80 years of Soviet rule. And then finally, in 1991, Ukrainians, you know, finally got a chance to have their own independent state. And we've been building this state. It was a very harsh, you know, difficult road with a lot of sacrifices, with again, a lot of lives lost when Russia invaded first in 2014, because Russia has been preventing Ukraine from building this, you know, free, independent, successful state, a democracy, first of all. This is what Russia is most threatened by. It's uh, because Ukraine is a democracy, what Russia isn't. We have free elections, free media, we have strong civil society. These are all things that Putin fears, and that's why he wants to crush Ukraine. So, as I said, we have a lot to lose, you know, and, and it was clear for me from the very, very beginning that Ukrainians were going to fight. Maybe it wasn't clear to everyone in, in the West, because um, uh, people in the West know Ukraine or used to know Ukraine much worse than, you know, we in Ukraine know our people and know our country. And I'm actually happy that now the world is exploring, like kind of discovering Ukraine, not just our fight now against Russian invasion, but hopefully also Ukraine's history, Ukraine's rich culture, Ukraine's, uh, you know, um, Ukraine has a lot to offer, but first of all, there should be peace. And that was independent journalist Olga Tukaryuk. Next, we spoke to Gabrielle Leu, a spokesperson for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees in Romania, who had just come back from the Ukrainian border in the north of Romania. My first question to her was about the number of people fleeing to Romania and how much that number is likely to increase by in the coming weeks. We see actually many people fleeing the border. We've been here for four days and uh, we see groups of people coming day and night, day and night. So basically there is no hour or no minute that people are not coming out from Ukraine, coming into Romania. What I can tell you is that for for the past seven days, over 92,000 people have crossed into Romania, not only uh, through this uh, particular border crossing point, but in total. So 92,000, this, uh, uh, this is quite a large number of people. It's, uh, um, I think it, it's very unusual for Romania. It's very unusual maybe for the, for the, for the other countries uh, in the region. But um, yeah, people are coming and they used to come uh, uh, like non- non-stop continuously from, uh, uh, from one week on. Initial reports suggest that some refugees who crossed the border were staying with relatives living in neighbouring countries such as Poland and Romania. So does that mean that the number of Ukrainian refugees we have is just the tip of the iceberg? So, yes. And, uh, I, but I would like to say something here. The people that we, we are counting as crossing the border, they are all refugees. There is absolutely no doubt about it. But not all of them are requesting the protection, international protection in Romania. So basically not all of them are requesting formal uh, protection um, um, here in our country. So basically most of the people that arrive here, indeed they stay, stay with their families or they have friends. 
um, many, many Romanians used to, like ethnic Romanians used to live in, in Ukraine and the other way around. So everyone, like many families that are arriving now, they have someone here in Romania or they have someone elsewhere in, in Europe. So not all of them will basically remain in the country. And we see that um, more than half of, of this, uh, 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 this number of people that arrive in Romania will remain. So if we are talking about, uh, uh, if, if you are talking about how people ask for, uh, for refugee status, then, then the, the figure is, is a lot smaller. For example, uh, recently, like the, the latest figure that we have, it's around 2,300. So 2,300 people ask for asylum uh, out of almost 100,000. What are the issues for people as they try to cross the border from Ukraine into a neighboring country? What happens at the border? And of course, we are here. I, I personally am here in the in the Siret border crossing point, but our colleagues are uh, present and partners present in other border crossing points. When they come into Romania, no, there are no problems. So they come into Romania, they cross the border without any without any um, um, difficulty, except for the fact that they have to wait for a long time to get to the Romanian side. But when they cross into Romania, uh, they if they there are several scenarios, that different things that can happen to to them immediately. If they have a, a, a passport, uh, they they can enter and legally they they would be able to stay um, for um, uh, up to three months as as anyone as any other tourist. If they want to seek asylum, then they will they will uh, be guided to the to the authorities to to request asylum formally. What happens to them is immediately after cross after crossing the border and um, uh, solving this uh, these legal issues, they will be they will be provided transport to to certain locations. There's, so there is a there is a service of transport organized uh, right at the border crossing point. They are taken either uh, either to uh, reception centers which are government led reception centers for asylum seekers or to other accommodation places for people that um, that do not have a place to stay. Those who have a place to stay will be provided free transport to, to other, other cities. Most of the people exit the country through, they head towards Hungary, so towards the border with Hungary, some of them towards uh, the, the border with uh, Bulgaria, and uh, some uh, go to the airport, uh, maybe in Bucharest, to continue their journey. There are a lot of Ukrainians who want to stay and fight the invasion. Are you hearing a lot of stories from the ground of families that are seeking refuge where fathers and sons are split from mothers and daughters? Even like from the first second you see them, you realize that everyone that is uh, young men or like men do not cross the border generally. Of course, there are exceptions, but we can see crossing the border women and children and elderly people. And um, actually there was there was a story, like very touching story from another border crossing point. There was a father that was bringing his family across the Danube. That was the border, the eastern border with uh, with Ukraine. Crossing the border, uh, crossing the like moving from the, the Ukrainian border to Romania to bring his family. 
and he was supposed to go back and he was talking to um to people and he was saying i i have to stay at home this is my country and now i have to stay at home i have to make sure that my family is safe but i have to go back so yes this is true many fathers and brothers they they and sons they stay back and uh, they send their families abroad what are the ukrainian refugees who do arrive in neighboring countries what are their immediate needs i think that apart from the fact that they they really need to get to the, a warm place like keep in mind that now it's sub zero it's freezing here and it's snowing so being outside it's not a good idea apart from that what they need is information really the first thing that they need to to uh, to get from us and from the authorities and from everyone on the this side of the border is information what is it going what is it going to happen like what's going to happen to me where do we go uh, what do i do if i have this type of passport if i have this type of uh, uh, id uh, um, what do i do if i don't know anyone if i'm lost so this this kind of information is essential at the very beginning and usually um they are uh, taken care of volunteers there are translators they are at the border uh, that try to to move they, them out from the border area and bring them to accommodation places w- where it's warm and where they can get food and water and so on and medical assistance if needed and so on. but uh, to us it's very important that these people know in case they need to seek asylum they have all the information and we explain them and we we bring them this information other needs some have medical needs i mean the the, the hospital here in suchava which is the the largest um, city near the border the hospital receives uh, refugees and people that uh, uh, were not necessarily very sick but they were exhausted and they needed um, they needed a bit of help or medical help or maybe children they had some fever so um i think these are the the immediate needs that uh, that we have to attend to when they cross into into romania other than that i think they need peace honestly i think they need to go back home i've seen people and this is really heartbreaking after so many years of working with refugees this is still absolutely heartbreaking children with their pets can you imagine so they left their country they left their home they took the pets with them like small dogs or cats with them and they they looked so lost but they were they were having you know keeping close to them the, the pets how does this compare to previous refugee crises does it pose any unique challenges this is this is nothing like we had here before romania is a country that uh, receives refugees uh, uh, starting with um, uh, 1990 after the, the revolution so usually we we got 2000 requests per year 4000 requests that was uh, that was a lot 4000 people uh asking for asylum in one year so what happens now is unique in so many ways uh, the number of 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 refugees or so the number of people that that ask for asylum in one week it's 
almost half of the number of people who asked asylum last year. So last year we had around 4,000, now we have 2,000 in one week. So as you can imagine, this is, um, it is, it is something that requires a completely different, um, different way of, of working. We are in emergency mode. Uh, everything has to be, everything has to be done now because people, as I said, continue to cross, like every, every minute they continue to cross the border. So we cannot compare this situation with other situations. The government um, has uh, issued two days ago, for example, or like a few days ago, an emergency ordinance that says the following. If you are not requesting asylum formally, we understand you are not a tourist. So we want to help you and we will provide you the same assistance that we provide to people that request asylum. So this was like a very, um, a very immediate measure that the government took in order to be able to assist those who are de facto refugees, but they will not by law re be requesting asylum. What I can also see is that it's like extraordinary mobilization of the civil society. It, this is fantastic. I mean, there are like thousands, literally thousands of people that are uh, willing to, to help. Uh, companies, um, radio station, everyone wants to play a role. Everyone wants to help Ukrainian refugees. And uh, what is now, what we see now as, as a, a very important thing is how to, how to coordinate all these offers for support in such a way that in two weeks time, one month from now on, we still have uh, this generosity, you know, at a level that, um, that uh, will help us to, to help refugees. At UNHCR, we are coordinating and like, day and night, we are coordinating uh, organizations, civil society. We work with the government to, to, to do this. And I can give you an example. People are calling and saying, I, I'm helping a family uh, with three children. Where should I go for this and that? And then there's another organization that says, I can provide food for people with certain, um, uh, you know, like problems. Uh, where can I bring this food? So all these, all these uh, needs and um, uh, offers for help are, are now put together in, um, in, in a hopefully more and more coordinated, ma coordinated manner. A little bit of hope there at the end then, Gabriella. Uh, thank you. And thank you to Olga earlier as well. You are welcome. And thank you for thank you for looking into this and thank you for paying interest to that. I think it is important to understand also that we have now a refugee crisis. All Ukrainians are refugees because they are fleeing conflict and they fear for their life if they go back home. And um, another thing is that there are so many refugee crises in the world and maybe if we look at this one, we can also understand other people that are coming from far away looking for asylum and they are refugees as well. I mean, a refugee is a refugee. It doesn't matter where, where he or she is coming from. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Olga and Gabriella for taking the time to talk to us. 
This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-host Michelle Hennessy. If you want to hear more about Ukraine, last week's episode gives context to what led up to Russia's decision to invade with DCU professor and post-Soviet expert Donika Obachain. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a one-off or monthly subscriber. You can also leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you. Slán